You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile's heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 21, November 3rd, 2016. So today on the show, we're speaking with Jacob Creech. Jacob has a vast background in development and has been at the forefront of several significant startups in Southeast Asia. For the past 10 years, he's been based in Shanghai and has been involved with agile coaching and training for various clients in China. Jacob is a prolific contributor to the agile community and has been a speaker on many occasions. So Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Talk a little bit about the cultural challenges and, and so on of being an expat in China? Uh, it's a really interesting thing to stop and think about. So obviously, you know, we have all of these stereotypes of what China is going to be like. And I was, you know, as un- uneducated as anyone or uninformed as anyone before I went over there and went over and had a look. And you certainly get the impression that it's quite hierarchical and very rigid sort of society. But what was really interesting to me once I got over there is... And I guess this is unsurprising in some ways, but there's just absolutely a diverse range of people and a diverse way of thinking and a really diverse way of approaching problems. So certainly there were a lot of people that were that, you know, rigid, hierarchical, bureaucratic, et cetera, that, that you do expect. But there's a lot of people doing really interesting and innovative things as well. And so what I found a lot is that the culture really reflected more of the character of the person than the character of the nation to some extent. That said, there were also particular challenges just on the way people are raised and educated. So, you know, China's got this history of uh, Confucianism, which talks about respecting your elders and respecting your teachers, which in the West, perhaps, we don't have to such an extent. So, for example, if I was running a training class or if I was uh, attending a training class, I would always be sitting there peppering the teacher with questions. And I always enjoy running classes where people are asking me questions. But the way it is in China often is that people want to sit there and listen and they don't feel comfortable to to say, hey, what is the reason for this or why are we doing it this way? And so that makes you know a really interesting dynamic for when you get into classes. And so I found there was a few things that you had to do to try and engage people in that sort of a situation. So for example, you know, we often talk about learning agile through games, but in China it became a really instrumental part of my uh, teaching strategy. So that when I was doing a class, I would always start with an exercise that involved everybody interacting with everybody, just to build a little bit of warmth, a little bit of confidence as you get started. And what I found is by getting people engaged early, they were a lot more willing to contribute as those sessions went on. So there's a few little you know, learning hacks, I guess, that I discovered like that. The other benefit for me is that I managed to pick up a bit of Mandarin while I was uh, based in China. So being able to speak to people in their own language obviously makes a really big difference. And then just identifying, you know, the the different characters that you're working with. And I think this is true anywhere. 
But if you can understand the way that people want to communicate, how they learn, uh, what sort of information engages them, then it's a lot easier to get those people involved in your conversation. And so I found like, you know, there's a few different characters, uh, much like we have the sort of disc profiles. Um, you know, I just sort of started looking at what are the different characters that people have over here? What sort of information they want? How can I express information in a way that has value to them? And so there was all those sort of little bits and pieces that became a really interesting learning experience. Of course, there were some other challenges being a non-Chinese person in China. Uh, I remember when I first moved over there, I went for about four months without seeing a, another single non-Chinese looking person. And the first non-Chinese guy I saw looked completely lost. He was standing across the road from me. And I saw him standing there reading his Lonely Planet, trying to figure out where in the world he was. And I was so excited, just staring across the road. And I ran over there and you know, I had this conversation with him. It was a German guy who'd got off the train in the wrong place. And wherever I went in that sort of period of time, people would stare at me. They would come and touch the hair on my arms. Why do you have hair on your arms? Why do you have hair on your face? Uh, they would you know, take pictures with me. They would get my autograph. So there was lo lots, of, lots of little bits and pieces that made life pretty interesting. So you're famous is what you're saying. Um, I felt that way. A few of my friends suggested that I should start charging people to take photos because so many people were doing it. But no, I never tried turning it into a business. Well, I lived in China for five years and my wife has blonde hair and blue eyes. So they would always want a picture with her. And then like I'm kind of awkwardly standing on the side and then like, oh, sir, you could get in the picture too. Well, Jacob, we met while I was living in China and you were living in China. And we both were mentoring at a startup accelerator which uh, was founded in northern China, but eventually moved to Shanghai called China Accelerator. And it was always something that I was interested. They did an experiment there by bringing you in to bring the startups up to speed on agile and the agile process. And um, I've, I've always been fascinated by how startups interact with agile. And I was wondering if you can tell our listeners a little bit about that experience. Yep. Um, what was interesting to me is a lot of startups had no interaction with Agile before I turned up there. So, you know, people in our community, we read a lot about Agile, right? We, we read a lot about lean startup, design thinking, uh, you know, fast innovation, failing faster, whatever way you want to put it. And that's really a hot button topic. But I was surprised by the number of people I met who were developing their own startups who had never heard of a lot of these concepts before. Um, so that, I guess that was the first, you know, surprise and learning experience for me. But the thing is, the people who go through programs like that, they're very ambitious and they're very smart. And so what I would do typically is I would just go and run a couple of sessions and provide a little bit of mentoring after that to, to sort of introduce, hey, how do you actually try and validate an idea as quickly as possible? And what is the value of continuous collaboration with your customers? And when you are going through an accelerator program, why does it become so important to introduce some sort of continuous improvement mindset? So I once heard it put that the goal of the startup was to find the right idea faster than they ran out of money. And I think agile and lean startup techniques really enable that. So, you know, if you worked on a traditional development process from when you get your idea to when you actually um, get to delivery, it can be obviously a very long time period. With Agile, it becomes significantly shorter. And then if we start applying some of those uh, validation ideas, so I often would work with people through that um, lean startup machine, that validation canvas that they put out, and you start identifying some hypotheses, you start identifying the riskiest steps, and then you just work through those quickly as possible. And what I would advise people is in the period of at the most a week, you probably want to have pivoted your idea, you know, five to 10 times anyway. So what we really want to do is to accelerate learning. 
And I think Agile as a process, it's very empirical, obviously, very data-driven, and it's all about figuring out what is the right thing to do in the first place anyway. I mean, I believe it helps you with two things. What is the right thing to do and how do we do the right thing well? But really, that, that first one is incredibly important as a startup, is figuring out what is the right thing to do. And so what I really encourage them to do is just get out and interact with their customers continuously, get continuous validation, try and validate the hypothesis, so keep working in an empirical way, and just learn as quickly as possible. It, it sounds like you were not necessarily certifying them to be certified scrum masters or something like that, but rather teaching them how to be completely agile, agile for the entire organization, which at this place might be, you know, one tech person, one business person, and maybe, you know, one other designer or something like that. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely correct. And, you know, not to say there's no value to certification. Uh, I know Daniel's a CST, so uh, I know there is a lot of value to that. But yeah, for these guys, it was just really about figuring out how do you collaborate as a team. And, you know, being a New Zealander, I often use the example of the All Blacks. I know you're a fan as well, Steve. Um, you know, what you want to do is just to identify those characteristics that enable high performance. And to me, that is things like excellent communication, having a, a well-defined planning strategy that's also very responsive to whatever situation you come upon as you go through your work. It's about thinking about how do you enable those people to be excellent at whatever areas of work they're doing, but also how do you identify when there's a, short for, uh, a shortfall in certain areas so that you can cover whatever gaps pop up. And especially in a startup, you're very constrained, right? You don't have a lot of resource to, to spend on doing all of these different areas of work. So although, you know, people have their areas of expertise, they really need to be able to work effectively as a group in order to deliver results. And a lot of it's about developing that agile mindset, right? So I always joke with people in my training classes, when does continuous improvement happen? And, you know, if people have been through Scrum for a while, or they're like, continuous improvement happens every two weeks at the retrospective meeting. I'm like, well, you know, the hint's kind of in the name, right? Continuous improvement should happen continuously. And if it's not, there's, there's kind of a problem. And especially if you're going through an accelerator program, so typical accelerators, what, about 12 weeks? It's, it's a really compacted period of time. And if you don't learn quickly enough, then you're going to fail very quickly. And, you know, I guess that's the concern that those people have and why they're so willing to listen to that message and get on board with that agile mindset. So today, Jacob, there's many different you know, theories and thoughts on how to scale across an organization properly and, and several different models. What's your take on scaling and, and what are your, what have you seen work and what's your recommended approach? Um, so first thing is there's not a one size fits all approach. I've always been what I'd call a pragmatic agilist. So I definitely believe a lot in the principles, but how those principles are applied vary a lot from situation to situation. And to me, any scaling method that you look at is essentially a collection of patterns, right? So if you look at less or if you look at safe, they've got a collection of really, really great patterns. And just like Scrum, if you put those patterns together in a certain way, you know you are going to get certain results. But that said, big organizations tend to be more complex and they certainly tend to view themselves as a lot more complex. And so what I find is they never want to take one of these approaches as is anyway. They always want to make a few modifications that meet their particular environmental context. So I, I really don't think there is a one-size-fits-all approach. I've developed a sort of one-day scaled agile workshop now where I just go through a few different scaling methods and I ask people to identify 
what do you think are the patterns that you can see in each of these that might be useful in your organization? And how would you begin to apply those patterns? And so definitely, you know, doing something like a scrum of scrums and doing something like, a, you know, the PI planning from SAFE, uh, doing something like having shared retrospectives, which is talk about, talked about in both uh, SAFE and LESS, all of these, I think, are really valuable ideas. And I think the problem is when you come to an organization and you try and beat them over the head with it and you say it must be all of this. So I've sort of come to the realization lately that when you do agile delivery, you should also do agile delivery in an agile way. So bearing in mind, agile talks about iterative and incremental. I don't think we should be forcing all of anything on these people anyway. What I try and do is to identify what is one unit of value that I can deliver to you as you begin to scale your process. And maybe the first thing is you start doing scrum of scrums. And then the second thing is you start having a regular get together of the product owners so that they can make sure everything is prioritized appropriately. And you know, you go step after step and you start building slowly more and more credibility and delivering more and more value. And I think that's really the key. So what I do is I essentially develop a backlog. How am I going to work with this organization? And what are the things that we're going to focus on? I make that transparent to the organization. And I reprioritize that based on stakeholder feedback on a regular basis. I adopt patterns from SAFE. I adopt patterns from LESS. Uh, I adopt uh, just any pattern that I think makes a lot of sense. And I put that together. So I, I don't like to turn it into that really, you know, it has to be all of this or it has to be all of that. I just like to identify what is the best way in each particular situation. And I know some people get upset about that, but that's what I've found works best. And I, I like how you adopt some patterns from each of those different um, those different segments, right? A little bit of here from safe, a little bit of less, a little bit of scrum scrums, a little bit of all, all custom things. And I kind of call that the buffet, right? Like you have a buffet table with all those artifacts and you choose the artifacts off based on the situation. So my question is, when you go into an organization, are you using the same artifacts from less and safe and everything else? Or for each organization, are you changing it? Um, there's certainly a lot that turn out to be common across all of the engagements that I've been involved with. But there's definitely some that just vary from organization to organization based on the way they do things. So I think that ability to be responsive instead of following a plan is kind of important. There's a manifesto that talks about this somewhere, I believe. And so that's what I've found works the best for me is just identifying what are the, you know, the issues, the constraints they face in each organization and what are the things that I can introduce or the patterns that I've seen work before that might be useful in that particular situation. We've been talking about scaling, Jacob. Where do you see the challenges with scaling agile outside of IT? Mm, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, you know, I've been I guess fortunate to have some experiences with organizations that decided to do, you know, pretty big adoptions of agile. And what you found is that doing agile inside of IT was never enough anyway. And I think, you know, a lot of agilists, we've sort of shot ourselves in the foot and saying, hey, we, we work with software and we're here to advance, you know, software. But really what we need to do is think about who are all of the people that we have to engage in order to deliver a value stream, right? What are the things that we actually need to do to enable complete organizational ability? So an example of that is if you go into an organization and they do still very traditional requirements gathering, which in New Zealand anyway is traditionally being part of the business, it's not part of IT, then if those people are not working in an agile way, then they'll still spend you know six months or a year gathering all of their requirements and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And 
they haven't been hearing this message of agile for years and years and years like people in software industry have been hearing. And so I guess the challenge is these people don't even know what they don't know at this stage. And so getting them on board and educating them a little bit about, hey, there's a new way of doing things and it, it enables you to do a better job of whatever you're doing, regardless of whether you're doing software or not, is a really important message. And so what I've found is actually spending time interacting with those people, explaining the new way of working and explaining you know, how can they build more effective relationships with uh, IT inside of their own businesses is a really, really important part of that challenge. And then figuring out how can they apply agile processes. What I've found to date is most of the types of work that I deal with on a business side, or uh, I might give some other examples like sales or localization, um, I found Kanban is a really good method for those sort of people. And educating them on, hey, this is the Kanban process, this is the principles that we like to follow, and the discipline that's required to execute that well becomes really, really important. And once they do that and they understand, hey, this is actually going to help us deliver our own work as well as helping our interactions with IT, I find they definitely get more on board with it. One of the things that you seem to hit on is you seem to pay attention to the culture of the organization because you you're trying to get you're trying to build a bridge between IT and the business and then on the flip side you're trying to build a bridge between the business and IT and it seems like culture plays an important role there is is that um, your experience hugely important hugely important and I would say even more than building a bridge I just want to like fill up the river so there is no divide between them and it's certainly been the way for such a long time that, okay, in, in IT, we all know that we've had lots of silos, but also there's silos in between different areas of the business, and there's silos between business and IT, and there's silos everywhere. And I think, you know, you've got to knock, the, knock down those silos in all areas in order to achieve that true organizational excellence. But then, yeah, the culture does become very, very important. And to me, a lot of transformation type work, if you want to call it transformation type work, is really about identifying what are those cultural impediments. So I'll give you an example. I worked with one organization that had a development uh, shop in the US and they had a bunch of developers over in China. And they always had the mentality that the people in China were low cost, low quality. And as such, they needed to spend a lot of time managing those people. Now, the people they are hiring in China are actually pretty smart people, but when you're constantly treated as low value, which is how they felt, and when you're constantly being micromanaged, they didn't take any pride in the quality of the work they were delivering, right? And so I, I sort of raised this as, as an impediment with the guys in the US. I said, look, you know, if you want to invest in these people, invest in them. And if, if you don't, like, that's entirely your decision. I'm just saying it's not going to work so well. You're not going to get the results you desire. And we started had, having this long discussion about what is the value of them having this micromanaging control and what was really the value that they wanted to realize from that. And what they really wanted to realize was higher quality. That was, that was the key thing that they were worried about. And I sort of said, what happens if you took a step back and you started discussing with these guys, hey, we want to achieve higher quality. This is the goal. How do we achieve it and pass that on to the team, which is obviously providing a little bit of self-organization, letting the team figure out how to solve those own challenges. And so enabling that self-organization, that was a really big cultural hurdle in that organization. But when we actually stopped and did it, it made a really big difference to their ability to deliver. And so I think having those conversations about culture become really, really important. 
And it's often overlooked. People feel like, hey, you know, I have a daily stand-up and I have a, uh, I have a planning meeting and I have a retrospective and I have a review meeting. I'm doing Scrum. But actually, you know, Scrum is really about thinking. So the purpose of a daily stand-up or a daily Scrum, whatever you want to call it, is about thinking about how you're going to collaborate as a team. And the purpose of a review meeting is not just to look at what you've done. It's to think about how are we going to make sure we're doing the right things going forward? Have we delivered value with what we've just done? And so getting to question a little bit more critically and changing the culture in that way also, I think, is really important. And it sounds like um, you're you're not just having conversations, that you're doing things that make them more comfortable. And we've seen this with in a lot of our experiences and also some of our guests have spoken about it with physical workspaces and things like that. So what are some of the examples that you've done? I mean, do you get the tech guys to wear suits and ties and do you get the uh, – you know, non-tech guys to wear t-shirts and, you know, logo t-shirts and stuff like that? Or, you know, what do you do to kind of get them together and get them more comfortable? Everybody in t-shirts, hopefully, because I hate wearing suits and ties. But I guess a, a lot of little hacks where you just try and build a relationship. So a lot of my experience has unsurprisingly been with distributed teams where we'd have some people in the States and some people in China. And building a team culture in that environment becomes even more difficult. So one thing that we did in a, a few of the teams that I worked with is we just had an open video channel the whole time so the guys could look and see what was going on in the other place. And then periodically they would get together and eat a pizza together and they would be both watching the same television show online so that they felt like they were having some shared experiences. And then, you know, we'd encourage just completely off-topic, non-work-related conversation. So we just like you know, see conversations on talking about like what are people's hobbies, what do they like to do in their free time. So they started to identify some common themes. Idea being that we wanted to build a relationship between those people. Um, going beyond that, you know, breaking down those silos between different areas of the business, enabling them to spend time together and enabling them to get a little bit of empathy for each other. Because a lot of the time it's this us versus them mentality when really what we want to do is to think about how can we deliver value as an organization. One thing that I really like to do was just to um, play a few team-based activities, and I would always mix up the teams so that there was people from different areas of an organization put together. So there'd be some people from you know, IT, and there would be some people from the business, some people from you know, legal, or some people from sales, whatever it was, so that they were playing an activity together, and they felt like they were being part of the same team. And I think getting them into that mindset of playing on, on the same team is, is pretty important to that. We ask all of our guests the same question, which is the premise of our show. What's next for Agile? So in your opinion, what do you think is in store for the Agile movement and what's on the horizon? Uh, yeah, really interesting question. So I guess there's a couple of things that come to my mind. So we spoke a little bit about Agile beyond IT, but I mean truly beyond IT. So recently, I've been working with a building research organization uh, trying to apply agile techniques to help them manage building research projects. And I really feel there's a lot of good practices and principles that come from agile that help people across all areas of work. I know a lot of people talking about managing their families in an agile way. I'm a really big advocate of managing relationships in an agile way. Why don't we have a regular retrospective inside of our relationships? Why don't we have a visual management board inside of relationships? And I think there's a lot of things like that that are going to be coming in, in the future. There's really a huge amount of applications and almost everybody I've spoken to, regardless of industry, once I explain the concepts, they think, hey, wow, that would make a huge difference to the kind of work that I do. 
and that would make me much more successful in my work. And if we could only continuously improve, life would be wonderful. And so I definitely think that's one area. I think agile culture is, is the next sort of thing. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there doing, you know, a lot of people might talk about mechanical scrum or mechanical agile, right? There's a lot of people that are out there just following the rules, but don't really understand the value of working in that particular way. So they go to their uh, daily stand-up and they keep talking about what did I do yesterday? What are I do, going to do today? What's blocking me? And they don't get much value from that conversation. And so teaching people about, hey, the value is really around collaboration and understanding what sort of culture supports collaboration is going to become a lot more critical. And I think it becomes more of a cultural thing in that regard. And I think that's another, another hot topic. And then the third thing, and we sort of touched on this talking about startups before, is around accelerating innovation. And so there's a lot of people who, you know, suffer the challenge of they get their they get their work handed to them and then they deliver it in an agile way and they do a very good job of delivery. But I don't think agile, you know, in general has really done a great job of addressing how do you actually take on that first step. So how do you develop really great product owners? Obviously, there's a few people out there, you know, Jeff Patton comes to mind that spend a lot of time working in these kind of areas. But I don't feel like there's anyone that's really nailed it or there's a, a really good explanation of how do you do a better job of innovation, product management in a digital age when things are just being delivered in a completely different way. And so I guess that's the, the third theme and probably the most important theme is accelerating innovation through Agile. It's a uh, pretty fascinating ideas and I really like where that's going. And, and one last question we have for you is um, what's next for you over the next year or two? What, what's next for Jacob? Yeah, good question. So uh, we've got Agile New Zealand coming up in late November. Um, it's unfortunately around Thanksgiving, uh, as you might know, Steve. So it doesn't work out for all of our American friends necessarily. But uh, Agile New Zealand is the largest Agile conference that we have down here in New Zealand, the hints in the name. Um, so I am organizing a lot of the speakers for that. Um, and I think that's going to be really exciting. So we're just getting set up for Agile New Zealand at the moment. Um, you know, for me, I'm starting to think about what my next steps are. And as I mentioned, there's a few topics that I really care about. So I've been thinking about for a while, you know, everybody has to write a book at some stage, I guess it's just become that rite of passage. So I'm thinking about what is the book of Jake uh, going to be? And so, you know, for me, I'm, I'm thinking about writing a book and I'm looking at a couple of topics, maybe around agile culture, maybe around agile innovation, but that's something I'm really interested in. And then I'm just going to continue exploring how do we help people in all the areas of work applying agile methods and I've had this theory for a long time about building an agile government. And I'm getting a little bit closer to trying to pitch it to a few political type people in New Zealand. So imagine if you had a government with a transparent backlog and you could see what that government was doing and you could understand the prioritization uh, decisions they were making. You could understand the constraints that existed within that system. And you can contribute to the product owner for a particular portfolio as part of government. And there was someone to facilitate collaboration across all the areas of the political spectrum instead of having these battles going on internally the whole time instead of being so adversarial. And don't you think that would provide so much more value for the money that we spend on our taxes? And so this is something I've been pondering in the back of my mind for a really long time. And I haven't completely cracked it yet, 
But I really think there's a, an important concept there around how governments are run and the next evolution of what politics in lots of different countries should be. Jacob, it's been fantastic having you on the show. We really appreciate the conversation that we've been having. Oh, thanks. It was great to be here. It was, it was really nice. Nice to catch up with you both again as well. Next week on Agile Next, we have Vinod Kumar. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv. 